While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And my name is Andrew. And if you didn't know already, each week we take a new book and we read it and then we talk about it. And generally they're classics or contemporary classics, books that people know about. Um, we've done one or two that maybe people don't know as much about and that's sort of like books that we have laying around. Basically you just uh, assume that everybody has read all the, read and not read all the same books. <laughs> Wait, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Who's to say that everyone has read the classics? I think everyone wants to read the classics, but then well, that like, was they that, never actually get around. That to was it. that. That was that great quote from Mark Twain a couple episodes back, where he was just like, a, "The definition of a classic is the book that everyone wants to have read, but no one wants to read." Like, <laughs> which is basically this podcast in a nutshell. And that's why Cliff's Notes exists. So we hope that if you're joining us, you either want to learn about these books so that maybe you don't have to read them or you have read them and want to hear what a bunch of neophytes think about them. That's basically <laughs> our, my elevator pitch for this show. Yeah. 16 or 17 episodes, 18 episodes in. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> some teen, some we've done a few. We yeah. I think, I think, uh, our last episode, which was Winnie the Pooh was episode 17. And we actually got a question, um, from a listener, Susanna, who wants to know about the animals in A.A. A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh universe in the Poohverse? <laughs> Pooniverse. Uh, she, we, you know, we, <laughs> the Pooniverse. I like that a yeah. lot. Um, she was talking about, she wanted to know how we came to the conclusion that all the animals except Pooh and Eeyore are real and that she thought all of them were stuffed animals uh, who Christopher Robin's dad was like telling goofy stories about. And I think that seemed to be our conclusion as well, but that it was messy in how it's told. Like Eeyore and Pooh clearly have stitches on them, and like Eeyore's tail comes off. But did you find an actual answer to this anywhere, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, I, I did some brief uh, brief Googling. Okay, um, like, a, like any good book researcher any, does like any good reporter does mm-hmm. and um i found i found a the wikipedia article for rabbit and i figure if wikipedia is good enough for college research then it's good enough for this podcast yeah yeah um and this this is from wikipedia so thank you thank you web 2.0 for writing this wikipedia article <laughs> Um, while most of the cast in the books are based on stuffed animals owned by Christopher Robin, Ernest H. Shepard's illustrations of Rabbit look more like a living animal. This idea is also supported by Rabbit's own comment to Owl, you and I have brains, the others have fluff. So, um, apparently, like, they don't come right out and say it, but it's, like, strongly implied by the original illustrations and by, like, I think if you look at the at the Disney um, illustrations, which probably are the the ones that people are most familiar with, like ra- Rabbit has like fingers and lacks stitches, and that's that's also the uh, the case for Owl and I think Gopher as well. I, I don't think that A. A. Milne cares 
not not that this is a podcast about Winnie the Pooh. We're gonna move <laughs> we on from just... that in just a second. Pooh two. Pooh two. But the sequel. I think Electric Boogapoo. Um but I think <laughs> that it's really just whatever like it suits him to have Eeyore's tail fall off because that's funny, you know. I don't know. I don't know why Pooh still has stitches, but whatever. Yeah, like obviously there's no like even the fact that they are toys is not enormously important to the central conceit. Like Pooh could no. just be a bear who's friends with a kid and it would be mostly the same story. <laughs> yeah, and all the the scale of these animals is all out of whack too. Like Piglet is tiny and yeah. Rabbit is huge. Rabbit's bigger than Pooh. That's you know, what's you know, that's what's really weird about like, especially if you think of the one where Pooh eats all that honey and then he gets stuck in Rabbit's hole. Like, one, this is a stuffed animal who clearly is eating. He's Two, eating. he can gain and lose weight, apparently. Yes. <laughs> like, and not instantaneously. How does that it's going to take him a yeah. week. Yeah. Just like anybody. <laughs> just like that. You just sit there for a week not eating. You'll get skinny. Don't you worry. That's my exercise plan. <laughs> the Pooh diet. Uh, well, the plan for this podcast is to move on to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is the book I read for this week. Yeah. Um, normally, we alternate week to week. Uh, last week, Craig read Winnie the Pooh, and this week, he read Frankenstein. I am uh, falling down on the job, but I think that we are going to do the old eye for an eye, and the next two podcasts will be books that I myself have read. So Yeah. That sounds about fair. Well, we'll figure it out. If you're keeping score at home, that's what the that's what the plan is. Keeping score at home, I'm in the lead, is what you're saying. Overdo the home game. <laughs> Play along with us every week. <laughs> I don't know what the rules are. Let's, let's talk Frankenstein, Andrew. Okay, um, tell me about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, I think this is a book where um, where most people kind of get the central conceit. Yes. And um, are familiar with some, like one or another version of it. But this is the original book from whence the story comes, right? Yeah, this is the book from 1818 that when it was first written by Mary Shelley, it was not published under her name. I don't know what it, who it was published under. Um, but then five years later, it was published uh, under her name in 1823, which I think is mm-hmm. pretty good for a uh, female writer in 1823. You know, yeah, no, it's pretty, pretty good. good. Uh, and yeah, the elevator pitch is dude makes a creature, brings him to life and it goes wrong. Like that's, (laughs) if you know, Frankenstein, there's a monster involved. You know, I think at this point, everyone understands that in the original, the name of the creature in the book is not Frankenstein. It's, you know, but that seems to be the like cultural shorthand. If you see a big green dude with bolts in his neck. Like, it's just a Frankenstein. It's a Frankenstein. <laughs> but that actually comes from the movie that was made in like the nineteen early nineteen thirties, I think, nineteen thirty one. Uh which has very little to do with the book. And is um, the monster actually named at any point in the book? Never. He is actually called the creature or not even but like not capital T, capital C. Like he is just a creature, or sometimes Frankenstein calls him a demon or He's a wretch or whatever. Uh, And it's funny, I was looking up, uh, because within five years of this being published, they actually made a play out of it. They made a stage play out of it. And there's a stage bill, it's like a playbill for it, where the guy who played the monster, it's just credited as like a bunch of dashes. Like he doesn't have a name. 
which I think is really neat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so he doesn't have a name. That's part of the point, I think. I guess plays were like the the book to movie transition yeah. of, of the 1800s. Yeah, like, <laughs> it was it happened real fast. This is like Harry Potter was 200 years. Yeah, ago. totally. Uh, and it's funny because the movie that was made in the 30s was based on a different play that was written in like the 1920s. And everyone said that play was really bad. (laughs) And it took a bunch of liberties with the story. And then the movie came out and everyone really liked the movie. Uh, But it has, it's a very different relationship to uh, what's happening in the book. Sure. And I think different adaptations of the story have different narrative arcs. So um, let's, let's switch into plot synopsis mode for a minute. Okay. And, um, like often in in fiction when a character brings another character back from the dead like they're doing it for a specific reason so is 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 um Frankenstein you know building this monster because he wants to bring some like deceased lover back to life or is it purely scientific interest that's driving the uh the experiments here it is purely scientific uh motivation um his mother did die when he was younger a victor frankenstein's mother did uh and then he goes off to school so he's living in geneva that's where he's from and then he goes off to this place called like ingolstadt or something i don't quite know uh but he goes off and he's like really interested in these older books about alchemy and you know very like hundreds of hundreds and thousands of year old ideas about how the world works and the the language that they use is like natural philosophy which is like the old school term for science like that that had not been split yet you know Mm -hmm. um and all of the dates like the book is to take a brief aside the book is what's called an epistolary novel which is the word i just learned which is when it's like written in letters or diary entries or like newspaper clippings or something like the whole book is a series of either letters or like recorded speech, if that sure. makes sense. But and is there a frame narrative that goes around that? Like, is are the letters from anybody to anybody? So it starts with letters from a guy named Walton who is on a like voyage to the North Pole on a boat, and he's writing home to his sister. And then they see this big, weird dude out on like a glacier or whatever. And then Frankenstein turns up in a separate boat and is like, who's this weird guy out in the middle of nowhere hunting after this other guy? And then he starts telling Walton the whole story about what happened. And so then it's all from uh, Frankenstein's perspective and Walton's supposedly writing it down. And then uh, when Frankenstein eventually passes, just because he's old and exhausted, etc., Uh, It goes back to Walton's point of view for just a little bit, writing letters back to his sister. And then within that, in the Frankenstein story, there's a spot where it's all told first person from the creature. uh, Because he and Frankenstein meet up and he tells him all about like his first two years of life or whatever. But anyway, so is that like a frame within a frame? Yeah, in a way. Sailor Um, telling... Frankenstein telling the monster's story. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, and the way it's kind of laid out in the text is that, you know, it's a first-person letter narrative for um, Walton, and then all of Frankenstein's chapters are just in the first person, and then all of the 
creatures chapters are like in first person but in quotations so okay. that like Frankenstein can toss in asides if he needs to. Sure. Um, but anyway, so Frankenstein goes off to school and he's reading all of these like really old books about the way the world works. And his teachers are like, you don't understand. This is all trash. We've discovered a lot. Um, you can do a lot more with this. But the one teacher he has is like, oh, that's really great, great that you've kind of been interested in all this stuff. Let me show you all these new guys and what they've discovered. And you can learn a lot from them. And so the like central thing that happens is uh, he kind of is very ambitious and he wants to contribute to science. And the big thing that's bothering him is he says, you know, one of the phenomena which had peculiarly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame and indeed any animal endued with life. Whence, I often asked myself, did the principle of life proceed? So he's really interested in like what makes things alive and what gives animals motion and behavior and all that sorts of stuff. And it's actually interesting because the whole idea of electricity kind of functioning in Frankenstein, which gets carried over into the movies and stuff like that. Yeah, it's is, always like a big bolt of lightning that, yeah. that makes it's like the catalyst for everything. And they talk about that kind of being involved. And as I was doing some research on it, like something, you know, the word galvanized? You know, like when you're like galvanized to do something, mm-hmm. you know, um, galvanism is the word you use for like when a muscle contracts. And it was only in the 1780s and 1790s that this dude named Luigi Galvani discovered that that's what makes muscles move. There's like an elect- electrical current that makes it move. And so like this is all pretty recent science when this book was being written, you know, and Benjamin Franklin had done his uh, experiments only a couple decades before so like electricity was like the hot topic at the time <laughs> it was not the store where you go buy skull t-shirts it was it was quite an electrifying subject oh <laughs> um and it's really funny because when so what he does is he like frankenstein is then motivated to i'm gonna do i'm gonna make life happen i'm gonna create a thing from death like he was very interested in the idea that like we are alive and then we die and then we decompose and then like from this majestic form that is man like worms feed on us and create you know new other types of life yada 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 mm-hmm. so he's kind of interested in that interplay and so he gathers up all these bits and pieces from like graves essentially and he doesn't tell Walton how he did it he kind of intimates that electricity was involved and that there was like a spark of life that he put in there but he very deliberately is like why would i tell you the whole point of this story is to tell you how this ruined my life i'm not gonna (laughs) tell you how i did it which is kind of a a wonderful little literary technique to like skirt over the fantastical nature of it yeah it's a pretty great cop-out and and also there's that you know there's that device that and I think we I've, I've I've mentioned it a couple times. I always bring up like Lovecraft whenever somebody is like talking about something and like implying something and not filling in all of the gaps and just kind of letting the reader's imagination create something that's more um, that's more like convincing than yes. than the author could ever actually come up with. Yeah, that's it's the whole like don't show the monster in a way. It's very similar to that, where it's like whatever is going to be created in the reader's uh, in the reader's mind is much more powerful. Um, 
there's it's like 50 pages in, I think, Frankenstein's talking about how he figured out how to do it. And he says, rather perfunctorily, I think, he says, After days and nights of incredible labor and fatigue, I succeeded in discovering the cause of generation and life. Nay, more, I became myself capable of bestowing animation upon lifeless matter. That's it. <laughs> oh, I was able to do it. And then I like, became God. <laughs> oh, I'm God. Don't no worry big. about it. Stuff's, it's cool. And then a couple lines later, he's like, but this discovery was so great and overwhelming that all the steps which I'd been progressively led to it were obliterated, and I beheld only the result. <laughs> like, it's so cool, I forgot how to do it. That's the worst science ever. It's great. But I totally, like, I can totally sympathize because, like, in in doing, like, I work with computers and stuff a lot, and sometimes I make something happen, and then I have to go back and write down how I made it happen, and it becomes much harder than it was. Well, it that was to just like instinctively make it happen. The I'll first say time. even as even as someone who works in theater, that happens too. Where like sometimes in a room with people, like we'll be working on a on a on a moment in a scene or in a play, and then it'll happen and it's great. And if I try to like explain it so that we can replicate it, it breaks because one because <laughs> it's a kind of like mad. It sounds goofy, but like a magical like every everything just fell into place and someone responded to something and it was great. And that's lovely, but if I talk about it, it's going to be terrible. <laughs> yeah, that is goofy. You were right. Um, yeah, whatever. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so one of the things that's interesting about the creature itself that I didn't realize, that like makes so much sense, it's just like a little detail. So the creature's big, right? That's something that's in the book. It's not sure. the big like flathead monster thing, but it is like a la- it's larger than man. Now, did he just happen to make it out of a bunch of, like, really big people? Or what happened to make it particularly big and monstrous? The He says that he made it big because it was, it was very difficult to replicate the, 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 the minuteness of the human body. Okay. So, like, he basically scaled everything up because he couldn't replicate it in such tiny detail, which I think is an awesome explanation. Now, how did he... St- is he not using like a patchwork of human body parts? Like, how did he scale things up if he's using? I imagine he like he doesn't really say, but I imagine it's like, oh, I took this part of a skull and this part of a skull and like jammed it together or something, mm-hmm. you know, or took like big specimens of everything, you know. It's weird. He doesn't really describe. Yes. He he has a lot of kind of trepidation and resentment for how gross he did how gross it was what he had to do and he kind of talks about how like the the idea of really uh discovering something this new and potentially world-changing would it will make up for how awful his job is sure you know um so yeah so that's why the creature is the way it is and then he makes it and what was I going to say? Where where is it? So he uh, he makes it right, and then he like shoots it with a bolt of electricity or whatever, and that happens, and that's great. And then when it wakes up, there's like this uncanny valley moment where he says he built it to be beautiful and be as beautiful as man is. And then the second it comes alive, and it is all like awful, and like its eyes are alive, but it's totally like 
you can see all of the sinews exposed and like throughout the book many people like liken it to a mummy you know okay because it's kind of a patchwork of different things and stuff and uh he he says that the 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 luxuriances of the form only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes which to me is just that whole thing where like you build a robot that looks like a person and then the second it starts moving it doesn't look like a person anymore and that makes it worse and you hate it (laughs) so even in 1818 the uncanny valley was a thing in frankenstein um so okay the monster's reaction to being alive is is what like i i know i i read this book myself like maybe freshman year of college which is getting to be like eight or nine years ago at this yeah, point think about that for i a know second. there's there's um the period that is told mostly from the monster's perspective i know it starts like he goes and um is kind of shadowing this this family or something, right? Or, yeah, or yeah, like yeah, this, yeah. And, so, and the person who's around is, like, blind? Yeah. So what he does is he, like, gets up, and Frankenstein thinks he's terrifying and, like, runs away from him. And then he sees him later. He sees the monster, like, in his house at one point, and then the monster, like, runs away because the monster has no idea what's going on. And then Frankenstein's... Little brother gets killed, so he has to go home and figure out that. And then he thinks the monster might be responsible. And then he, like, is so depressed by that whole thing that he, that Frankenstein, excuse me, Frankenstein, not the monster, like, retreats into the mountains. And then the monster meets up with him. And the monster has a deal to make. But before that happens, he, like, tells him his whole story. So that's how that happens. Like, skipping ahead a whole bunch of stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. So in the monster, what happened was he, like, ran out of Frankenstein's house or laboratory or whatever. And there's, like, a period where he's kind of like a baby where he has, like, complete synesthesia. Like, he has no idea what his senses are or how they work. And he doesn't really understand the difference between day and night. Which is really cool, like, to just go through the steps of a creature that was fully formed but didn't have the mind to express what it was experiencing. Like... Shelley does a really good job of kind of exploring how that might take place. Like if a baby had words to describe like how it was learning to experience the world, that would be really interesting. And that's what this book does really well. Um, But then he ends up in a town and people chase him away because he's hideous because he's a monster. Mm -hmm. And then he ends up like in the woods like in a little shelter that he built for himself outside of this cottage. And you're right. He starts observing this family that has a blind patriarch, like older grandfather patriarch and two younger kids, like a probably in their twenties or something like a guy and a girl, like a brother and a sister. And so as he's watching them, he learns language because they talk to each other. Uh, They have a whole history where they were like, nobles in france but then through a series of unfortunate events you know were exiled and ruined financially so like the monster is learning about human nature through their experience at the same time Mm -hmm. and then he knows that they're going to be frightened of him and hate him so he he tries to approach the old man who's blind and starts talking to him and he's very well spoken which is the exact opposite of the movie frankenstein right 
and by Frankenstein right. I mean the monster. Like he's like a fire bad, but you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> like I think of that Phil Hartman sketch from Saturday Night Live, and this monster is like he's very eloquent and he knows his voice is kind of bad, but that's fine. It's really just his appearance, which is so terrible. Mm-hmm. And he also doesn't know where he came from, and he doesn't have a name, and so there's that all that like imagine being a completely intelligent being and not being able to relate to anyone and all that like that's kind of what this book does really well. So then he goes and he tries to talk to the old guy, and the old guy's like, "Okay, what's going on? Like, you know, talk to me about what your problem is." And Frankenstein's the, the, not Frankenstein. The monster is saying, "You know, I want to introduce myself to these." <laughs> to these friends of mine and they're going to hate me because they don't really understand me. How do I get them to understand me? And as that's happening, the son and the daughter come home and the son chases them away with a stick. Yeah. And like, then they get evicted for some reason and the family leaves and the monster is so upset that he burns the cottage down and then like <laughs> runs away. And the whole time he, he has, he stole like a coat or something from Frankenstein's house and then he discovers all of the papers that were in uh, Frankenstein's coat that had all of the notes from the creation of the monster in it because that's okay. a convenient little thing that happened. Sure. And uh, so the monster discovers like his true nature and that he has a creator who was repulsed and abandoned him. And so he decides to uh, like wreak havoc on Frankenstein's life, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then the the big thing that he tells him that he meets when he meets him in the mountains is like i will ruin your life unless you make me a companion is like the big offer he gives him Mm -hmm. and through that section where frankenstein is meeting the monster you get a lot of the whole like not only is he this giant man but he is incredibly limber he's really fast he's really smart so he is the kind of antithesis of the monster in the films yeah. So Frankenstein did a pretty good job, really, except he's terrible looking. <laughs> like, like he's smart, he's he's well spoken, he's he's, you know, physically capable. He yep. just is he just is kinda hideous. Yep. So, you know, most mostly he did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it what's what's really interesting about it is that he doesn't even know there there's kind of that nature versus nurture debate that kind of happens a little bit too, where uh, the whole time Frankenstein knows that this monster like killed his little brother. Right. And he's like, you're a terrible, that you're a terrible thing. You horrid creature. How could you do this? And Franken and the, and the monster's like, well, of course I'm terrible and awful. Humanity hates me. How could I ever be nice to humanity? And I know that humanity is bad to itself also. Like, and so there's this side, like Frankenstein kind of blames the monster for being what it is. And the monster saying, well, I'm only a product of the system and the world that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the world being unable, like me not having a companion is also part of it. Like by being alive, don't I have the right to be, uh, you know, happy? Etc. Um, so he kind of tries to blackmail Frankenstein into making him a companion, which Frankenstein starts to do and then is like, screw this. How do I know that this companion isn't also going to be an awful monster that kills things? 
and so he trashes it and then the monster goes nuts and ruins everything for Frankenstein and then runs away to the Arctic and then Frankenstein pursues him there. That gets back to the nature versus nurture thing too. It's just like, why, why would you assume that it's automatically going to be a terrible monster that destroys everything? It seems like the only reason why the monster that exists is a terrifying thing that destroys everything is because like he has this these physical defects that keep anybody from wanting to associate with him. Like if he could if he could somehow find a village of people who could who could like if you just live with a bunch of blind people, if you yeah, just live like, with a bunch of blind people, he'd be like fine. A cabal of blind people. Well, and one of the things that makes his journey with the cottage so sad is that he sees that they are struggling. Like they don't have a lot of money. It's hard for them to have food. They have to expend so much energy to like chop down wood for fires and stuff that he'll spend time in the evening like chopping extra wood for them and they kind of refer the people in the cottage talk oh there's this spirit that's helping us out you know and so he's kind, kind of, of in a way <laughs> he's kind of engendered himself to them already and then he knows he's been good to them and from his perspective they've been really good to him because they've taught him basically everything he knows through osmosis you know he once he learns that they can make sounds to one another to communicate ideas, he then learns when they start reading that there are correlating like word, like symbols on paper that express those ideas and yada, yada, yada. And then he reads a couple books and he reads like Paradise Lost, which has all sorts of other like thematic overtones for the rest of this book. Sure. Like because the monster kind of views himself as Lucifer, as like the fallen angel but Frankenstein kind of views him as this failed Adam in a way. It's That's kind of interesting. But, yeah, and so he thinks that he's got along really great with this family and that he's helped them out, and then they repay him with awfulness. And there's, a, there's another story where the monster, like, sees a girl drowning, and he saves her, and then the, the girl's dad, like, shoots him. And he's like, well, <laughs> I, can't, I can't do anything right. <laughs> Like, no matter what he does, people just hate him. Um, but there's this really interesting turn in the latter part of the book where, you know, Frankenstein's really run down. The, the Victor Frankenstein is really run down. And he's up in the islands after he, like, refused to build the monster, his the monster's companion. And he's, like, on this boat. And he comes ashore. And all these people look at him oddly and, and accuse him of murder, which he didn't commit. And there's this period where Frankenstein is starting to get the treatment that the monster got mm-hmm. of the outsider, which I think is kind of part of the book as well, thematically. Uh, and Frankenstein starts referring to himself as a wretch and a horrible creature and stuff like that. So you can even see in the language that Shelley's choosing that Frankenstein's arc is one of kind of becoming a monster himself or, or at least feeling like he is because he blames himself for all of the terrible things that the monster did. Sure. Um, which is one of the reasons why he won't tell the the guy Walton how he did what he did because it's like that's no, <laughs> I don't want that to happen to you. So, um, obviously, there's some stuff going on here with you know, about the relationship between the person who creates something and the thing that is created through yeah. that process and how like 
good intentions can go bad and um, how your actions can have unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Like, like, give me just give me your thoughts. Yeah. Let's talk yeah. About this. Well, I think <laughs> it's, it relates to a whole bunch of things. Like on one level, it, it relates to, you know, a lot of religious stuff with, you know, just people's relationships to God and, and who they think their creator is. And that's like one whole rabbit hole you can go down. Uh, or it's the man creating things that it that it doesn't understand. You know, there's I love the moment where Frankenstein starts creating the companion monster. And then he's like, I don't... Okay, so the monster swore that he would run away to South America and never kill anyone ever again. But I don't know about this thing. And I don't know that this thing is going to behave like the other monster. I don't know that this thing is even going to like the other monster. And then I'm really screwed. <laughs> So the idea, you know, look at it today where people are exploring artificial intelligence or even you can look at people just creating things for the web and then the way it gets used is not the way that you intended because you've left it up to the hive mind in a way. You know right. I mean? You can you can say like this is my this is why I'm doing this and this is my intent. And these are like the ideals that I am that I'm holding to by making this. But by by um I guess giving it life, like giving it its own agency and like in a way when you create like software or, or, or something, you were, you were giving life to it by releasing it to, to yeah. other people. Like by, by doing that, you effectively give up full control over it. And yet you still have to accept responsibility for it. Right. Or you should anyway. It seems to be the book at least posits that, that Frankenstein, well, that's, Frankenstein, that's, claims culpability for everything that has happened that's that's kind of interesting because in in a way i think it's true because the like obviously all the the killing of people and all the stuff that the monster does yes technically would not have happened had had you know victor frankenstein not created it but at what point and this goes for whenever anybody creates anything is like, at what point is the monster responsible for what it does? Or at what point, like when you take, I mean, again, using like software or some kind of, some kind of technology analog, um, at what point are the people who commandeer this stuff, like responsible for, for what it does, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think that goes back to the nature versus nurture argument for people, for kids or for you look at like the criminal justice system of like what creates repeat offenders. Is it the system or is it mankind's nature to just be a terrible person for some people? You know what I mean? I was actually, I was talking to uh, a friend of a friend the other day who's like a parole officer and he, his job is to work with the people who are almost guaranteed to get arrested again, you know, like the really hard, hard people. Yeah. And is it their fault that they're going to, what happened in their life that is probably not their fault first? Like it, what part of the poverty, like what part of socioeconomic problems created a system where it was easier for them to commit crime than go out and, you know, live an honest life. Um, and that's some of the questions that the monster raises in the like, his first experience with mankind was a village turning on him because he was different and scary looking. And then like, how is he supposed to learn anything different? You know? Yeah. Um, and you can see that in just also people's relationships to their kids too. Like 
if your kid is just a jerk, like, is that your fault? Is that your genes' fault? Is that your fault for raising them wrong? I don't know. Yeah, just like I think that, and this is this is just venturing into personal opinion. And I, I will let you and the listeners know, like I'm thinking about this stuff, and I'm seriously bumming. I'm bumming. Are out. you bumming out <laughs> right now? I'm kind of bummed out just by thinking about nature versus nurture and like you you get like you you don't even really notice that there's a problem until your monster kills somebody (laughs) (laughs) and then you're left with this monster that's killed somebody and it's probably too late to make a difference and so you're just left to think like what could i have done could i have done anything yeah 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 like i'm Man, you brought me down. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bum you out. <laughs> I mean, I think that's because that's one of the one of the Twitter questions um, or Twitter comment actually that we got a couple of days ago. Yeah, bring up the bring up the Twitter. Bring comments. up the Twitter. Um, a guy Ryan who is not not specific to uh, Frankenstein. A uh, guy Ryan was tweeting at us the other day talking about wanting to know a bit more about what we thought about how the books kind of how their themes stand up. Like, if it is a classic, like, why is it still worth revisiting? Which I think we do sometimes. We talk about that kind of, but we don't address that question, like, specifically. We don't distinctly say, like, why is this book still worth yeah. it? And I think we should, I really think that we should um, we should start trying to make that, like, part of yeah of what we what we hit. And we've, we've had a mixed level of success. Like, we, we've tried to... Um, We've tried to say, okay, let's start the show off by asking, why did you read this particular book? And that often falls by the that wayside. That often completely never happens. But, yeah, like, with Frankenstein in particular, I feel like it feels, and I mean, maybe the prose feels a little older. I haven't read it It in does. A while, it feels, but, it but feels the, kind of hard. It's a little dense sometimes. But, but the themes feel even more applicable than some of the newer stuff that we've read. Like, if you look at Turn of the Screw or something. Like, yeah. Who knows what that's about? But, <laughs> like the the Frankenstein stuff, like you know, tampering in God's domain, the relationship between creator and createe, well, the, and the I think nature I, versus nurture argument, like this still. And I think this is why the Frankenstein stuff endures is just that the the questions that it raises are very relevant still. Something I wanted to talk about um, as we, we started talking about kind of like software and, and creations like that, but the whole realm of artificial intelligence, like I was immediately, as I was kind of researching a little bit for the podcast and getting my thoughts in order, I was reminded of uh, the artificial intelligence character in the Ender's Game series, which is like this kind of omn- omniscient computer program that came out of a character's mind, essentially, right? And, like, the arc of those books is what's going to happen when the rest of the world finds out that that thing exists. And are they going to treat it like a sentient being? Or are they going to treat it like a wayward computer program that is worth destroying? You know? And that seems that follows a similar arc that the monster does. Because it's like the monster is physically superior to man in every way. And then also is at least as intellectually capable as man, if not better. Like, that's not really proven. Um, and how mankind reacts to th- such an evolution that it probably created is very important. And I don't think that we have all the answers in our own world as we start, like, exploring, like, creating 
programs that can self-teach and, you know, watching that Jeopardy computer answer all sorts of questions. <laughs> yeah. And when they, like, loaded Urban Dictionary into that Jeopardy computer and then they had to delete it because it was, like, cursing all the time. <laughs> Did you, did you hear about that? No. It was great. But I am totally not surprised to hear that. Like, if you start feeding real, like, colloquialisms and stuff into a computer, of course it's going to start swearing all the it time. It's pretty great. It's like, pretty great. Uh, what else would it do? Um, yeah, so I think it's, defi- I think it's definitely relevant. I, there, was a, there was a stage adaptation that, what's his name, Danny Boyle? The guy who did Slumdog and 28 Days Later. Okay. He did a stage adaptation in London a couple years ago that had, ironically enough, Benedict Cumberbatch and this other guy, yes. John Miller, who who plays Sherlock on the American CBS show, that like Watson show or whatever it's called. Sure. Elementary, maybe. That's what it's called. I've with not, Lucy Liu. that one. Um, but they did a, a stage adaptation that apparently was excellent. And they, the two of them would switch between playing Frankenstein and playing uh, the monster, like, throughout the run of the show, which sounds really cool. But, yeah, it's incredibly relevant and resonant, as I think. People are figuring out new things to create that get away from them in the age of, you know, online everything. Yeah. Where people can start taking ownership over things you create in about five minutes. What happens if you create a Frankenstein movie that then gets away from you? Oh, I don't know. What is the, what is the thematic significance of that? I don't, I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> um, got uh, more Twitter questions, I guess. Uh, Corey Smock wanted to know, he wanted to know more about like the original book's influence on the movies, which we talked about a little bit, I think. I guess I'm not. <laughs> the Frankenstein movie that I'm the most familiar with and I'm sure I'm not alone in this is uh is Young Frankenstein. <laughs> okay. That's that's not useful. So how does the book <laughs> How does the book inform Young Frankenstein? I don't think it does. I think okay. I think Frankenstein the movie informs Young Frankenstein and okay. I haven't seen the original Frankenstein movie so I can't really say. But I think I don't even know when putting on the Ritz was <laughs> was written. Like I don't even... It sounds like the original book. Is that in Mary Shelley's book? Yeah, I think there's a, there, there's a sequence where they just sing Putting on the Ritz. It's pretty great. <laughs> um, I don't think the book has as much to do with the, the classic movie as people think. Some of the character names are the same. And the idea that he's going to create this thing for the betterment of mankind, I think, is there. And the idea that the monster gets away from them is there. But that's about it. I think it. Yeah. The, like I, the the fact that the monster is intelligent in the book adds a whole different layer to what's going on, and to the idea of creating something that is just not present in that film. Yeah, like I was just gonna say, it sounds kind of like the archetypical book to movie transition as you take a lot of the plot elements and things, and I think this is gonna happen. This is gonna end up happening with World War Z too. Um is you have this element in the book that works well in the book and is like thematically important in the book, but it's a little hard to show. Yeah, so it goes and away. And so you you just make the monster wake up and be like, Frankenstein <laughs> smash. And it's 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 oversimplified for the sake of 
you know, ostensibly making something that's more interesting to look at, yeah. I guess. Well, and they made a, they, I want to go back now and th- they made a Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in the early to mid nineties. I don't remember if it was Robert De Niro or it was, I might be misremembering that. That sounds like not the right person, but, <laughs> no, it um, really doesn't. but they did. It was more of a, like, he's just a large dude who's very intelligent and, you know, it's much more, he was much more in line with the book. Um, who was the guy who played Ray Romano's brother on? Oh God, what's his Raymond name? Something because... Garrett. Oh, Brad Garrett. Right. <laughs> he would be a great Frankenstein, right? Sure, sure he would. <laughs> Just if we want to cast our own Frankenstein yeah. adaptation. Yeah. Great. I'll move on to the next Twitter question. <laughs> um, and Dan M wanted to know uh, why we think it's called the Modern Prometheus which is the subtitle of the book. It's Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. And you're the one with the classics degree, so you want to tell us a little bit about Prometheus? Let's pause this for a second. No, I'll tell you. We don't need to pause the podcast. Do you want me to just tell you? Uh, no, I just have to remember which one. Is. I don't think we're going to edit this out. I think we're going to let this go. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I I know who Prometheus was. Of course I do. Because <laughs> he created man from clay. Yeah. And then and then uh, he took fire so that man could have it. And, and so Zeus was like, what are you like, doing? Yeah, so it is, it's, it's a modern Prometheus in that, in that they created something that got away from them. And it, the act of doing that cut the creator off from the rest of, from the rest of like his society. Yes, that is exactly true. And that Prometheus yeah. was a Titan and then Zeus punished him by chaining him to a rock and having birds eat his liver or whatever. Yeah, it doesn't sound fun. No. Uh, and that's the arc of the story is that this kind of ambitious creation then causes tragedy. So that's why it's called Modern Prometheus. Ironically enough, uh, Immanuel Kant called Benjamin Franklin a modern Prometheus after his... Uh, his work on electricity, which was kind of contemporaneous really? to the book. So I don't know if Mary Shelley knew that when she wrote the book or not. But um, And then Dan also wanted to know if we had seen Prometheus or Alien, because um, that was an interesting name that they used for that prequel movie. <laughs> and I don't know. I didn't like Prometheus that much. I didn't see Prometheus, and I haven't seen Alien, but I have seen Aliens okay. and most of Alien 3. So make of that what you will. Great. I will say that they do. <laughs> there is that. That's a really. <laughs> there is an element of, of, of Frankenstein's monster, I guess, in the, like, there was clearly in the Prometheus movie, there was, like, a, a race of things that created those awful alien monsters that then ended up destroying those things and that's like how that all went down mm-hmm. um and so like you created sentient life and then that sentient life destroyed you yada yada frankenstein i think that's where that similarity begins and ends i don't think that i don't think that movie's as deep as it claims to be yada yada frankenstein yada, yada. all i remember all i remember from the trailer is that it made very liberal use of the inception like the blob i think the beginning of that not that this podcast has to be about that movie i think the beginning of that movie is beautiful i think the score is great in the beginning of that movie uh i think the scene where the main character gets like a c-section from a robot cot is like horrifying and awesome but the rest of that movie doesn't make that much sense Um, (laughs) so that's (laughs) there you go that's that. That's that question answered. Uh, Thanks, Dan. 
And then, thanks for as we're thanks for writing it. <laughs> no problem. And as we're wrapping up, I just kind of want a, a neat bit of trivia about the writing of the book. Was that you know it was published in 1818, but the apocryphal story for its genesis was that during the summer of 1816, Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley were hanging out with Lord Byron in Geneva, like you do. But yeah, no big deal. It was. Have you ever heard of the year without summer, Andrew? Um, no, I've not heard of that. So one. in 1815, this giant volcano in Indonesia erupted, and it like spewed all this ash into the, like the stratosphere, and it messed up the seasons for like a year because it just created this crazy weather event. So <laughs> they were hanging out in Geneva, and all the weather was like rainy and cold and terrible. So they ended up just hanging out inside, talking all the time. And they came up with the, like, we should write scary stories kind of contest, like nerds okay. do. And she, Even if that's not real, that's a really good, like, origin yeah, story. Yeah, it's pretty for good. The, for the book, yeah. Um, and so she, came, she claims that she came up with the main idea in, like, a dream or something. But who knows? But I thought that was neat. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's a story about the other kind of parallel stories that it reminded me of. It reminds me of Jekyll and Hyde. It reminds me of Dr. Faust, actually. Dr. Faustus, like this kind of scientific ambition leading you into terrible things that you don't have any control over because you're... Yeah, that's kind of an interesting through line in a lot of this fiction is it's about... And maybe it's just like... Maybe it's about like the the rapidity, like the relative rapidity with which these big scientific like these these scientific breakthroughs that we take for granted now mm-hmm. that were just being made is mm-hmm. like when you look at Frankenstein and you look at Jekyll and Hyde, it's all about like scientists getting in over their head and then bad stuff's happening. Well, so and, like that, that's a whole nother, I don't even know if we need to talk about it or if we have anything to say about it. It's just like, no, I, I'm sure we'll read other, other books that fall into this time period, so we'll come back to it. But I think part of it is also that like science as we understand it is still very new while this stuff is happening. And so there's that kind of distrust for new ways of thinking, mm-hmm. which is that, that distrust in and of itself is as old as time. You know, new things are happening and we don't understand why they're happening or how they're happening, so we hate right. them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that seems to be part of that we'll, we'll revisit that i'm sure in yeah future definitely. episodes so speak- i've technically i think i've technically read an abridged version of jekyll and hyde but i've never read it i've seen oh i think the I, the, I, the <laughs> proper version i think it counts as unread enough that it fits the show's premise so yeah maybe i'll add that to my pod. i have seen the musical Je- jekyll and hyde <laughs> which i like some of the music okay it's not a bad show but I haven't seen it live. I saw it on HBO, and it was a production starring um, David Hasselhoff. Yikes. It was really entertaining. I, would, I don't know if I would <laughs> use the word good, but it was really entertaining. Okay, that's, that's something, certainly. So hopefully we've been really entertaining this week. I don't know. Go read Frankenstein. Yeah, I, just... I liked it. I just want to um, obviously this show we've we've actually been able to respond to a lot of messages that we've gotten from Facebook and Twitter, and we just want to say that when you guys take the time to do that, that's like amazing and awesome. That kind of makes this worth it. Um, yeah, like especially when you're people that are not like in our <laughs> in our 
<laughs> own personal friend circle. So speak up. It's just it's it's really it's really nice to know that people are kind of listening to the show and, and digging on it. And if there's stuff that we do routinely that you like or don't like, or stuff that you would like us to do routinely, like I really think we do. I really do want to, even if we don't end up both reading the same books in a given week and having like a deeper discussion about it, picking like a thematic thread and really taking some time to like dive into it is something that I really want to devote time to in like future shows. So, um, yeah, if you get on Facebook, uh, we have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash overdue pod and we have a Twitter account at twitter.com slash overdue pod. And finally, we have a Gmail address at uh, overduepod at gmail.com. If you communicate to us through any of those three uh, mediums, uh, we will definitely read it. And if you are not just spamming us or telling us that you hate us, we will, we will probably engage with you on air and, you know, use, use your question to further our discussion. So just thanks so much for, for doing that. And we hope that you continue to. And if this is your first episode and you want to find more, you can go to OverduePodcast.com. I almost messed that up. Uh, and you can find back... You really need to grab OverduePod.com. Yeah, too. we really that's do. Might be, that might be confusing. You can find uh, back episodes. You can use our RSS feed for other devices or whatever. You can use our iTunes link there where you can also rate and review us. We'd love that. You can also find Amazon links to all the books that we've read and the next books that we will read. So if you want to support the podcast, uh, picking up those books is a great way to do that, and it keeps our website ad-free. I think yeah. that's and, um, it. Even, even if you're not going to buy the books, just just click through those links and then, and then buy, buy your uh, Breaking Bad yeah. Blu-rays, and uh, we'll, we'll, get a, we'll get a cut. So Great. Don't tell, don't tell Amazon, but <laughs> that's something you can do. Is that it, Andrew? I think we're good? Um, I think, yeah, I think that's the thing. Thanks for just, listening, everybody. You know, yeah, it's it's really uh it's a lot of fun to do the show and it's a lot of it's really um revitalizing, invigorating. I don't know what word you want to use, but it's really uh, it's really encouraging when people respond to us. So, yeah, keep keep doing that cuz that was that was a good that was good this week. We got a lot of good reader feedback. Yeah, it was pretty good. Keep it up. You jerks. <laughs> don't slack off. We won't slack off. We'll try not to. Well, I mean, we might a little. We might slack but. off. You won't. We won't tell you about it. Great. All right. <laughs> okay. We'll see you next Thanks time. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Bye, everyone. <laughs>